But I have to tell you, this has been one of the most fun podcasts that I've done. Oh, thank you, Jeannie. So, oh, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we talk about all the topics that you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Christina. And my name is Jose. And this week, we are continuing with part two of our discussion with Jeannie Gaffigan. Yes. I hope you guys enjoyed part one. You listened. Yes, she's amazing. Yeah, great story. So in part two, we will hear more uh, specifically about Jeannie's journey going through uh, discovering that she had a brain tumor, uh, which was the size of a pear, uh, her recovery and how humor, uh, comedy helped her to heal and to recover. Mm -hmm. So it's a great story. So stick around. But first, babe, what are we drinking? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is... Very, very hot. So I am drinking a bubbly, or um, as it's known in the commercials, a buble. Mm. I decided to go non-alcoholic because it's really hot and I don't want to be dehydrated. So this is a very tasty, uh, sparkling water drink. Yeah, I wasn't sure I was going to like those bubbly drinks, but they're really good. Yeah, I... uh, not a fan of the La Croix, as it's known. Is it? Is I, it? Is it La Croix? I thought it was La Croix. La Croix. La Croix. It's French, no? It's French, but I think there's like a little twang on it. I don't. I don't know. Let me look it up. Oh God. Because I would say La Croix as well. I would say La Croix. Here's how they say it. In France, in French, we would say this name, La Croix. I La was French. right. You are right. But what about the drink? Oh, see, everyone is pronouncing the brand name La Croix, not La Croix, like the French would say. So there you go. That's bullshit. I call bullshit on that. People people <laughs> are calling it La Croix, which is why I thought it was called La Croix. Because the French, the proper way to say it in French is La Croix, but people have been saying La Croix, sort of like how people have pronounced those shoes Adidas. Yes, don't even get me started. People, Americans, it is Adidas, not Adidas. <laughs> so anyway, LaCroix is what people call it. LaCroix, I guess, is the proper French pronunciation. But anyway, yes. I'm not a fan of those drinks. No, it's it's like a bitter sparkling water. Yeah. Um, more of a mineral taste mm-hmm. and uh i'm just not a fan of the harsh flavor no but bubbly is good yeah, yes buble is good i'm actually drinking the dinkful ipa uh generously hoppy another one of these sierra nevada drinks. dinkful wow yeah i was wondering if there as was... in d-a-n-k-f-u-l dinkful yeah, I was wondering, is there some, like, marijuana-related <laughs> content? But no, there isn't. No. It's just very hoppy. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's dank, as the kids would call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got uh, 7.4% alcohol. In the back it says, a better tomorrow is why we brewed Dankful, a resinous West Coast-style IPA 
that stands up for social equality, economic well-being, and environmental protection. That's awesome. There's an environmental like mission or vision behind this drink. So very nice. I like that. Very cool. Drink up, people. I'm very thankful for this drink. <laughs> Now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for a few minutes to engage with ideas and deepen our understanding about the world. This week, Christina will discuss... I will discuss arachnophobia. It's something that hits home for me, although it's not something I'm an expert in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> although it's something I'm not fond of. Arachnophobia is the intense and irrational fear of spiders and other arachnids. Although I wouldn't call it irrational. No. I think it's very rational (laughs) to be afraid of spiders. They have eight limbs, teeth, and then they can bite you. They can bite you. Some of them are poisonous. A lot of people are, are either afraid of spiders or snakes. Mm-hmm. So I fall into the category of spiders. And I was thinking about it. I I was wondering at what point in my life did I become arachnophobic? I honestly, I think I have to say that it was after watching the movie Arachnophobia. It came out in 1990. I was 10 years old. And I don't remember having the fear mm-hmm. that I had prior to that, yeah. that I have now, you know? So I think that movie, for whatever reason, had a huge part in why I'm so uh, just afraid of spiders. <laughs> That's understandable. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little research on arachnophobia and just wanted to see, you know, how many people are actually arachnophobic. And according to Wikipedia, about 3.5 to 6.1% of the global population is affected. Yeah, but I think the other, like, 94, 97% are lying. Yeah, yeah, right? I just, I, I thought that was a really small percentage globally. I would say pretty much every wife. <laughs> I'm, I'm often, you know, called into a separate room of the house <clears throat> to come and extradite or murder <laughs> a spider. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't believe in um, letting them get away in this house, so. But so, come back. Yeah. <laughs> Black spider. Yes. I don't know. It's just... But anyway, and then I was thinking about it. You know, uh, is arachnophobia um, inherent in nature or learned in behavior? I.e., were my parents or my mom afraid of spiders? And I observed that behavior. And then I myself, you know, was like, oh, this is the response I should have. That wasn't the case for me. Um, I don't ever recall my mom squealing over spiders um, or anything like that. I, she's not fond of them, but I don't think she's an arachnophobe. Not At least not to the degree that I am. It's just... I, I Okay, so this is kind of a, a tangent, but I think like hell 
<laughs> is made up of people's worst fears, right? To be tormented over the things that we fear or hate the most. So naturally, like if you're afraid of spiders, could you imagine being tortured for all of eternity by the one thing that you are right. the most fearful of? Clowns. Uh, insert the Indiana Jones snakes. Yeah, I hate snakes. That's my fear. <laughs> I hate snakes, Shock! I hate them! Yeah, give me a snake any day over a spider. I don't, I, I just, uh, I don't do spiders. So. You know, I'm also looking into, is there treatment for this? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, do people actually go for treatment of this? I mean, I, it didn't occur to me that it's a possibility. But I was reading about exposure therapy, and I'm like, what? In my mind, that doesn't make sense, because why in the heck would I want to be exposed to the thing I, I fear the most? Mm -hmm. No way. Absolutely not. You know, one study found that uh, using virtual reality was a way, and, you know, I don't want goggles strapped on my head, and I'm, I'm in this VR of, like, spiders or whatever. No way. That's, that's another torture device. Another study was um, looking into people watching superhero movies, right? And that tends to lessen the severity of the phobia. <sighs> Okay, Spider-Man, give me Spider-Man all day long. It doesn't make me less afraid of, you know, that black bulbous spider, you know, in the corner <laughs> that I think is just going to come down at any moment and, uh, and torture me. So, yeah, thanks, Spider-Man, but uh, that's not the cure for me. And then um, the other one was just basically exposure or flooding, which would be exposure to multiple spiders all at once until you're basically desensitized of your anxiety or whatever. And that, again, that's just a, a torture, not device per se, but method. Like that would just be, that would be like hell on earth for me. Mm -hmm. Like that would just be my worst nightmare. It just sounds so horrible. But yeah, I just wanted to, you know, talk about that because it's not uncommon. Uh, it's a very common thing, but uh, globally, it's not as common as I thought. So anyway, it's a frightening topic. Yes, it is. All right. So in this week, because I'm talking to Jeannie and she's going to go into some detail about her experience recovering from her brain tumor and the pain and suffering that she endured, I figured I would talk a little bit about suffering hmm. in the cross. Yeah. So you and I have been reading the book of Job for quite some time. Uh, it's really, really long. I think there are 42 chapters. Yes. And and there are a whole host of tragedies that befall poor Job, uh, who by all accounts is a righteous man. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's left with nothing. He's penniless, poor, he's alone, he's got nothing. And so as he's in mourning, his friends attempt to console him. Um, but after a few days, they start to basically suggest to him that all the tragedy he's suffering is his own fault. Right. What did you do to bring this upon yourself? What did you do, Job? <laughs> and as we read, the book of Job is really frustrating because mm. you know really that Job is righteous. Yeah. And he doesn't deserve any of it. Yeah. 
chapter after chapter, Job is lamenting to his friends, and he's rebuking them for blaming him, and he's actually rebuking and kind of calling out to God himself, mm -hmm. saying, like, why is this happening to me? I wish I was never born. This is awful. And just as an aside, I often will hear from atheists that their main objection to there being a God is pain and suffering mm -hmm. in the world. But I should point out to my atheist friends that right here in the Bible, we have Job, who's crying out to God about his pain and suffering. Um, and by the way, he does a better job lamenting the pain and suffering than any atheist could do. Mm. Job doesn't lose his faith. He's just upset with God. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think it shows us that it's okay to be upset, mm -hmm. right? It, it's human. We, we have these emotions that our God, our creator wants us to express. God in the form of a man, Jesus went through many emotions and lamented himself. So well, that brings me to my point. My next point. <laughs> God, though, eventually does speak to Job and he kind of puts Job in his place. Where were you when I made the heavens and, yeah. and the earth? Yeah. You're basically, I don't want to say insignificant, mm -hmm. but in the terms of eternity, yeah. you're not even like the blink of an eye. Not even a blip. Not even a blip. He puts Job in his place. And so the Old Testament doesn't really have a great answer for suffering. Mm. It's not until we get the New Testament, the New Covenant, when we get the answer. Yes. Right? And the answer is Christ cross. Yes. The incarnate God who comes to our world, our fallen world, and himself endures torture, suffering, pain, and death. Mm. The most brutal torture that the Roman Empire could inflict on anyone. On any human. Exactly. But here's the difference. We are baptized into Christ. Yes. We're baptized into his death. Yes. And we are born again into his resurrection. Yes. We have new life. Mm -hmm. So in Christ, right, there's hope mm -hmm. and eternal life and life everlasting. So pain and suffering, death, aren't the final word, right? It's not the end. Right. Right. So anytime you're suffering or going through any tragedy, just know that's not the end. Look at the cross. Look at Christ on the cross and know that God himself in human form also suffered. And God himself in human form also told us that we will have trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. So that's a guarantee. Not if or when or maybe we will. Yes, because this is a fallen, imperfect, broken world. Right. Anyway, folks, just wanted to share that. We have hope in Christ, his resurrection, and yes. life everlasting. I wanted to end on that note before we go into the Genie Gaffigan <laughs> conversation. All right, guys, so here we go. We're going to move now into the interview with Jeannie. When we last left, uh, Jeannie was telling us that she had taken her kids to a doctor's appointment, and it was her children's doctor who noticed that uh, she maybe was a little off balance, that she was having hearing issues, and that she might want to get it checked out. So that was the cliffhanger we left off on last week, and then uh, this week, let's pick up from there. say one more thing that's really important too uh -huh. is that if we haven't i would not be having this conversation right now with you because 
literally, I did not go to the doctor or take my kids to the doctor that entire time I was running that show. So when I took my kids to get their well-child visits, that's when my doctor, who is still my doctor now, noticed that I was having like hearing imbalance problems. I was not even at the doctor for myself. I was with my kids for their visit. And she was like, I want you to get that checked out. And I was like, oh, it's fine. And that was during uh, Holy Week, correct? This is, that appointment wasn't. But when I actually did go to the MRI, that was during Holy Week. I chronicle every detail in the book. But let's jump ahead to that. So I go finally to the MRI. There's a big saga of me getting the MRI too. Because uh-huh. then you really get the sense of like what a miracle this hall was. The MRI was on Tuesday of Holy Week. So Wednesday was limbo. Lim- Wednesday, I don't have any idea what was going on. On Tuesday, I knew something was wrong because the way that the technician in the MRI reacted. And I had been sent there by an ENT doctor looking for hearing loss. So they had no idea that they were going to find that brain tumor that was so uh, obstructing my brainstem. Not, they thought it was something by my ear, but everything runs through your brainstem. The cranial nerves are the right there. So essentially, the guy's like, um, your doctor will call you, right? I'm like, what? What do you mean he'll call me? This is a routine MRI. I'm like, I think it's like two weeks I go back. They're like, no. So eventually, I'm at home. The doctor's like, listen, you have a mass in your brain. And at this point, it's beyond my scope. And so I'm just going to give you the numbers of some neurosurgeons. And I'm not going to go neurologist because it's probably going to have to be resected. And I was like, what does resected mean? And he's like, removed. I'm like, removed from my brain? Like, I couldn't even, you know, you think of someone going into your brain and removing something. You hear about it, but you hear about it like, well, it ain't brain surgery. So anyway, I tell this whole story in the book, but essentially my husband takes me down to the radiology center. We get a disc uh, image. We try to look at it. doesn't read it on my computer. I call my friend who's a neurologist in Milwaukee, back to Milwaukee. This is like well-written. I don't know. And he... Uh, he says, FedEx me the film. So then Wednesday was like nothing, right? On Thursday morning, Holy Thursday, my friend calls me. I drop off the kids at school. My friend calls me and he's like, you need to go to the ER. So he photographs his computer screen and texts me. And I see this wall. You know, yeah. that's the first time I heard the word tumor, right? Remember, it was a mass. I didn't yeah. know what that meant. I thought, you know, you go to mass, you know, and it was compressing my brainstem all the way over to the side. So it was like, usually you have this straight shot up and down, right? From your brain to your body. And mine was like way over. Like, I don't know how you're walking around. So I outlined this whole story in my book. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially I wind up getting, I call it like the parting of the Red Sea. That's the name of the chapter in the book is that a series of events happened and there was no like, oh, I'm the comedian's wife. There was no VIP card, believe me, except for maybe the fact that I'm white. That's probably was my VIP card because I've always said in this story, like it was just a miracle that I could walk into the hospital with no appointment and barge in and bypass all these things. And then at one point, one of my friends pointed out to me, but also you're white. So like, I I didn't even think about that at the time because we don't. White people don't think, oh, I'm white. They just are like, oh, it was a miracle that I walked in with no appointment. But anyway, that's a different book. Um, But in this case, it wasn't like I was like, 
out of my way. I'm a celebrity. There was nothing like that. I was just like in sweats, you know, it was like, you go to the, the ER. But instead of going to the ER, a series of events brought me to a different department because someone called and my ENT called someone who was in Florida who called Mount Sinai. It was like this crazy thing. So I walk in and my, I have my disc puts up there. I, it turns out I somehow found myself in the office of who doesn't take appointments, like on a walk-in appointment. You know, you know how it is when you go to a walk-in clinic. Come on. So I find out later, by the way, this guy is like exactly the expert on the technology that is required to remove this brain tumor without like completely making me a vegetable. So at the, that moment, when he was like, tomorrow, yeah, I want you to come back here. I'm like, can I have the surgery tomorrow? Because my friend said, get it, it, it today. And he was like, no, no, we have to map your entire brain so we can do this very intense virtual reality like surgery so we don't damage your nerves. That's the goal. So we, you have to be here all day on Friday and take pictures. And then essentially you'll have the weekend off to like tie up what you need to do with your family. And then Monday come in to the hospital for brain surgery. So I'm like, what day, like from Friday, what do I have to do? What's going on? I was like, oh my God, it's good Friday. So I was like, this is meaningful. I'm like, I knew that God was with me because of the timing of it. Now, I probably would have found, you know, because I'm very, you know, metaphysical reality person, would have found another, you know, reason God was in it if it wasn't the timing, but it was, all right? So it was like God winking at me and saying, I'm here. I knew that whatever happened, whether I died or whether I lived, right, that it was the will of God that I was in that moment. And it was the most intense uh, confrontation of my faith. And, and then as a matter of fact, that Easter vigil, I'll never forget it. And I got the anointing of the sick. And I call it the put your money where your mouth is moment. And the reason I do is because we're all always like, oh, heaven, you, know, you if you vote this way, you're not going to heaven, right? You better be good and you're not going to heaven. But then you find out that you might be going to heaven. You're like, oh, just kidding. I don't want to go to heaven. I'm scared. I'm, you know? So it was like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. You believe? Do you really believe in eternal life? Do you believe in it? Because right now you're confronted with that. And it was like, whoa. And I was like, I do believe. And it was really, really awesome. Because that's when I realized that I was not a fake inside myself. That I, I believed in God and I believe that he he had me and I believe that he was in it yeah it wasn't like why God why me it was like you got it yeah that's really a uh, wow powerful story Jeannie of your faith so how did your faith so it sounds like at that point you realized you weren't a fake Catholic a fake Christian but you guys are the Gaffigans humor how did all this come together and sustain you through this difficult time? Well, you know, I have to say that I just had a conversation with somebody um, yesterday that I, I, this whole concept of facing tragedy with comedy is a theme in my life. Okay. And it's, but it's not like something where I'm just like, you know what, if you get diagnosed with cancer, just laugh it off. They say laughter is the best medicine. And it is after you've received real medicine. <laughs> I don't want to seem insensitive because there is suffering and there was horrible pain and people die and it's tragic, but I think it's the things that happen around it. So it's like, I don't know 
know much about your bi- biography and I'll have to find, I'll have to like really do a deep dive on my podcast, which doesn't exist yet. But and I have you as a guest and I have to do these kind of deep dives on you. But um, like, so I don't know what level of, um, I don't know how close to your home the meteor has struck. That's what I call it. Because like when you're younger, the meteor strikes like kind of close to your house and you're like, whoa, boy, the neighbors really got it. That was yeah. close, right? It's down the street, yeah. And every year the meteors get a little bit closer and closer and then you have a kid and then something happens and they go to the doctor and, you know, it's like you, you're afraid but it even starts like when you when you get pregnant, right? You're mm-hmm. like, oh, they said the heartbeat wasn't, you know, and you're terrified. But some people, when they're really young, they get hit. So I don't know where you're at with your experience of grief, but if you've ever been involved in some tragic situation, like a funeral or, you know, somebody in your family passes away and the family gets together for whatever, there are moments of laughter between the siblings or with dad and mom or whatever. They sustain you in those moments. Totally. And it's not you're laughing about the death. It's just the, the processing. And I think that that is a gift from God. Uh-huh. I think that humor is a gift from God. Um, Amen. It's so funny because when I was on, uh, uh, let me just uh, call out our friend Sam. You know Sam Rocha? Oh, yeah. He's been on the podcast. Okay, okay. So he was, we were on his podcast and he was start trying to connect like the passion of the Christ and comedy. And I was like, wait a minute, I feel wrong about this. But at the same time, it's like not at the moment of it, right? But it's like there's certain things that like you can unite in the tragedy and the suffering and the pain. And God gives you this moment of light. And it is in the form sometimes of humor. So I was just talking to someone yesterday about this and realizing that it's not the tragedy that's funny. It's some other thing when like, you know, a squirrel gets in the window during the, you know, it's a ridiculous thing that's like this gift of light. And so the way that things developed is that what was happening to me in the, in the ICU, because if, You'll read this in my book, but basically what happened was is because my the tumor was so my my nerves had all found their way to survive around it. That's how I was able to walk around. So when it went away, there was a lot of like floppy nerves. So even though the surgeon was really convinced that I was gonna lose my I was gonna have a paralyzed face because my facial nerve was right in the middle of it, he saved it. But there was like a, some dysfunction, especially with my breathing and swallowing. So things got all wonky in recovery. And what happened was, is that I aspirated my saliva into my lungs and I woke up in the ICU because I uh, had almost drowned and I had double lung strep pneumonia and, and I, it was hospital born. So it was very serious. And so what happened was, is here I thought I was going to go home and they were like, you're not going anywhere and you're going to be on all these machines. But my mind was, was firing. My mind was like, boom. But my body was like, uh uh-uh. And it was really, really hard. And within that, not only did I have a major spiritual uh, experience, but I also had a lot of really funny experiences too. So for instance, when I was in the hospital, I couldn't speak. Uh, I don't know if I had a trachea on me yet, but I had like some kind of hose down my throat. And somebody took a video of me and I was like clowning because my my siblings came. 
and it's kind of embarrassing because you're like on all these tubes and all this stuff. And like, it was just so ridiculous, you know, but my brain was on fire. Right. And I was just trying to like, with my eyes, like trying to, so, and, and so someone took a video of me and I, it's like the funniest thing ever. And then also my friend Karen Burgreen, who I've been friends with forever, and she's a comedian. There's so many brilliant comedians in New York. I have to tell you, just like me walking into a hospital and finding the top guy who's the best at, that's how New York is, right? You find the top people. So Karen, who like went to Harvard Law School, who's a comedian, she was so amazingly funny that she came all the way up to uh, Mount Sinai to visit me. And she came in. She's like, you didn't even lose your hair. And I came all the way up here. It was like 25 minutes on the subway. I thought you were going to be bald. Like, she was so funny. And it's like, people were coming in and they were like crying. And they were like looking at me because I'm like so strong. And I was just this weak thing. And, and it's, it's shocking. But the funny people got me going. Right. Like my brother, Paul, you know, people would just come in and be amazing and funny. And like that was so much better than just everybody. Like, how are you? Oh, my God. You know, because after a while, you're like, I need some funny. And then um, and by the way, during this period of time, Jim wasn't funny at all. I was in the other room soiling myself. But Jim was not like I thought I killed the funny guy. Because he was always stressed. He was coming in. He was like trying to manage all my family, stay on my house and on my couches. And people were sending food. There was no room in the refrigerator. Wow. And our friends would send us the most delicious food she couldn't eat. So I found myself hiding the food and secretly eating it. The hospital was quite far, right? Because I had Googled the best neurosurgery department in the city of New York, and it was far. So when I was in there, it was like a long day to, to come back and forth. So Jim was trying to manage his kids and he stopped all his jobs. And part of his sanity is leaving. That's what makes him sane. You know, you and I discussed this a little bit before we started. It's like, you know, the relationships, you know, have worked a certain way for a long time for a reason. You found your way. And then the pandemic challenged all this stuff. Well, this was my little pre-pandemic. This is my little warm up. And so essentially what happened was um, Jim was not funny. And as a matter of fact, I felt a lot of conflict with him when he would come in. Oh. Because I wanted him to stay with me, but he needed to be with the kids, right? Yeah. And it was like, but he made sure that every, someone was always there with me. But he gave everyone shifts. And I got a hold of this thing where he was like, all right, shift one, day shift, Monday. And I was like, shift? Visiting me is a shift. Like, I was so mad in my head. I was so mad about shifts. But well, how funny like, is that now? Right now it's funny. That's funny now. So what happened then was, is when I was released, and again, I'll go on another hour if I, if I tell you the whole story, but let it be known that I was released before I was recovered because I was getting sick from the hospital. There's stuff in the hospital. Like, think about that. Like, what if it was COVID, right? So I went home, but with a home care nurse and the whole machines and everything like that. And at that point, Jim came back. He was so funny. And I was really horrified because I had a food tube. And he was so funny. He made a cooking show on YouTube called Feeding Frenzy about feeding me through the peg. And me. it was so funny. I can't even tell you. He did this bit where, because I couldn't do anything, right? So I had to take a hose and like hose my hair off 
to, to wash myself. But then I couldn't get back in the bed because I had wet hair. So Jim would blow dry my hair. And he created this character of this like gossipy hairdresser where he would like, he'd be like, I've been married five times. Like he was like from the South and he was like, honey, child. Like he was really funny. He was like from Steel Magnolias or something, right? He was like the divorced woman who like has her beauty shop and gossips about everyone. It was so funny. He used to do this thing where, because I couldn't walk, right? So when he would like take me to the bathroom, he would, and I was mortified, mortified. He would be like, your carriage is here, lady," And then he'd like put me over his shoulder and then he'd pretend he was a horsey bit. I mean, it was good. amazing. And so all these things really got me going. And I felt like it was a gift from God that I had humor, faith, family. It was all part of my healing. Because now you look at me and you're like, wait, she was, this is all made up. But I have video evidence that I was like, you know, so I don't take for granted for a second. Like I said, like a lot of times I'll have like coughing fits where I'll breathe in the wrong way and I won't be able to breathe. That was one of the reasons why I was high risk for COVID. Not because there's anything really wrong with my, like, I don't have diabetes, I don't have heart, whatever. But if I, when I'm on events, I've, I've been on a bed, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I will aspirate, you know, I can't drink, eat anything like that. If I don't have strength to cough out my lung, like I'll cough things that go down in my lungs that are not good. And they'll, they'll get infections and I'll die. So I'm very, 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 very uh, grateful when I cough. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm not. Cause I feel very capable of everything. And then God's like, but remember, you know, so just really quick morphing into this thing. One of the spiritual awakenings that I had was when, before I got out of the hospital, there were definitely times where I had visions of, you know, it was about to end. So one of the things that I want to say, and you can read my book to get more details about this, is that when things started to really drag on and I was just staring at the ceiling for days on end, it was horrible. And I couldn't take painkillers or sleeping pills because I had to, but my breathing was extremely, you know, my oxygen was like 80. So it was like, I couldn't, you know, even if you take a, a, a sleeping pill now, your breathing is not the same. It's weak. So I needed as much strength as I could to get that air in. But it got old. Like I was like, can I just go to sleep and wake up and be better? I was, it'd be like, I'm like, can I eat this week? It was terrible. So anyway, I forgot about God for a while. And I just started thinking about myself. Poor me. When am I going to get out of here? And then I just really became like a real a monster. Like I just was really angry and I was resentful of people who could walk around and I was miserable. And then something would happen where I'd be like, oh yeah, God. And then it was like gratitude. And I started looking around at the people who were collecting the garbage and picking up the gowns. And I was like, what? Angels. And I love everyone. And everyone's so good to me, you know? God made, makes things good. So I, when I thought that I might not get out of there, and I think, some, I think somebody died in that ICU, and nobody told me, because it would freak you out, right? That the, that person's feet that you saw the other day are gone. So I said to God, I was like, I'm not ready to go. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. I got big plans for you. And it might not be what you think it is. But it's going to be, I 
you know, your kids. It was about my kids, about other people's kids. I joke around, but it was scary. We have five children. And there were moments when I was like, oh my gosh, if anything happens to my wife, those five kids are going to be put up for adoption. And it was about making sure that kids are aware. It doesn't take a brain tumor. Because I was philanthropic before. You know, I definitely was working with the, you know, social justice stuff before. But I didn't have the charism to teach it to kids. It was about me. And now it's more like the hand that rocks the cradle saves the world. That, that leads in, yes, perfectly. Nice segue to what are some of the philanthropic things you're doing? So I, I follow you. I follow the Imagine Society on Instagram. Um, I see you're doing great work on there as well. You guys have the dinner with the Gaffigans, and I see you guys do fundraisers on some of those episodes. Maybe you could just elaborate on some of these um, projects that you're involved in. And it sounds like this kind of came out of your experience. It was like the first thing that I was, you know, it was like the mountain that I was imagining building, right? Like in Frozen Towers of the Third Kind, when the, you know, Richard Dreyfus is out in the yard, like throwing stuff into a big mountain, and the wife is like, what's wrong with you? So I had this vision uh, that it was Catholic, of course, because that's my paradigm, that after the religious ed program ends, what grade do you teach again? I teach eighth grade, eighth graders. Oh my gosh. Yeah, see? <laughs> okay, so after the, um, oh, Jose, um, after the confirmation, there's like nothing. There's like the teenage wasteland. And then there's like the young adult, like theology on tap. Yes. You know, it's like the, it's like Catholic underground, but yeah. there's nothing for teenagers. Nothing. And I mean, there I that's probably rude. There's probably a lot of stuff. There's, you know, youth day or whatever. But I'm just saying, like, there's nothing in the parishes. There's confirmation. It's very like you go through your formation and then you go away and then you come back and get married. Essentially, I was like, my kids are like, you know, 13, 12, like they're and like, you know how it is. I'm not judging it, but it's out there. I mean, it's much cooler to be out there than in the church. I mean, for them. So I was like, I need to like start a social justice club. Like you, because those Protestants, they, they're raging with those youth groups. Raging. They've got camping trips. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. you don't have that. So, I mean, some do. I think, but it's not a thing. So it's not like a standard thing. So my pastor was super open to it. And uh, I started this thing and it was very popular. And we, uh, you know, the kids were, were right by the Bowery Mission, which is amazing. Uh, it's uh, it's Christian center, but it's not Catholic, but it's a renowned respite for the homeless situation in New York. And um, we started doing drives and our former pastor had this uh, relationship with this family shelter with for um, pregnant mothers in the Bronx. And we just sort of like jumped right into that. And as things went on, we started, I have this really amazing mentor who is a religious ed teacher at uh, the Church of the Ascension, where her post-confirmation kids, which are called the Spirit Squad, started this food pantry that started out as just like collecting cans at mass. People are like, bring in a can. And then they would give it out. And then it just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we we'll fast forward to the pandemic. It's, you know, now it's, we're closer to 400 families a week get groceries. But so she was a huge mentor of mine because I saw that the kids loved 
to go and make sandwiches together and do these things and make a difference and be like, I learned about these things from uh, my religious ed and now I'm putting them into practice. I'm not just, you know, out there in the desert. So one day, and this is very specific, the um, kids were, or her, her kids actually, Spirit Squad, were giving out uh, sandwiches or bags with cards on them for shelter addresses to homeless guys in Times Square. Not like, oh, don't touch the homeless guys, but like being like, hey, man, how are you doing? Talking. And across the street was another young group of teens. And so Robin, my who's like my mentor, who's a religious teacher at Ascension, walks up to the adult leader of that group and said, what parish are you guys from? And she's like, oh, we're from Temple, uh, you know, Road of Shalom or whatever it was. They were from a temple in the neighborhood of Jewish kids. So she called me. She's like, we should do like a group thing with these kids, like Midnight Run or one of these like really great social uh, campaigns where you're helping people. So some of my kids said, well, I mean, if they're not Christian, why would they want to help? Or they said something very like bubbly. And I was like, I mean, bubbly as in you're in a bubble. And I was like, you know what? We need to do interfaith work. We need to do healing, interfaith, interneighborhood, inter-socioeconomic. Uh, we get the kids from the private schools, the kids from the public schools. Like, this is how we imagine that our society can be. And so out of that, because I have my Catholic group, St. Patrick's Warriors, my little Catholic group, is part of this bigger thing, the imagined society, which it, it has to be a youth component. That's the, the difference. And what we're trying to do is spread the message that, human beings are dignified and important and need help and so we during the pandemic uh as soon as it started my husband just like he did the food tube show on youtube started doing dinner with the gaffigans and youtube because it was a crisis with the pandemic just started was like you know you could raise money for like one day you could do the world health organization and one day you could do you know people needed stuff and then at the same time i was with my warriors we were doing the uh we do an easter basket drive that got cut off because of the pandemic we couldn't do it so we were like we still have to get those babies and moms their easter baskets but now we'll make them like wellness baskets like we'll put baby thermometers like things that were really really hard to get like what you need in a situation where everyone's at a shelter and it's a pandemic right and so at that point i'm like we need the imagine society to get in on this job because we're there's no way we can do this alone we're getting a lot of minds and zoom meetings and all this stuff so then we had also started to send food to doctors and nurses in New York because they were not getting a break. And so at a certain point, Jim was like, why don't we start raising money for the Imagine Society with Dinner with the Gaffians? And so it just became this thing. So then like thousands of dollars because we were doing the show. And so every night, let's say we raised like $150 and we're doing it for like night after night after night. And then it's a not-for-profit, right? So we've got to make sure that we've got a budget and an accountant and a whole thing. So we have been multiplying the good. We have a newsletter. We have a, an amazing uh, Food for Families program. We have Imagine Babies, where baby showers, like women who give birth in homelessness and shelters get beautiful products and things they need. And now we've just started something called a hashtag a new chapter, which is building libraries in juvenile detention center. Because someone came to our church at Christmas and said that they were a teacher in uh, one of the juvenile detention facilities in the 
Bronx that said there was no books. Like, can you imagine being in a lockdown? A juvenile detention center is when you commit a serious crime as a minor, but you your home is not right for you to go home to, a judge says. So you go to a lockdown. And and in New York, it used to be you were with adults. And only a few years ago would it be a juvenile center. These kids don't have books. I mean, we're talking about eighth graders. They're just going to get in trouble. So we started doing library, like mobile carts with library books and people donate books. It's amazing. Come on. Like, that's obviously God is behind that. It's not me. That is incredible. I, I love that you're able to you take your experience and out of that comes so much good. And I, and I think that's a lesson for a lot of us. Like we could just kind of go, oh, poor me. But for you, like you was an inspiration and you were an, inspired by your faith, inspired by God to continue to do good works for other people. Um, people who are themselves in many cases surviving or, or going without, you know, Jeannie, you, you and your whole family do such great work. When I got diagnosed with a brain tumor or when you know, we all were like, oh, there's a pandemic. You have to stay home and school is closed. You know, we take for granted there are people out there that that's the way they live anyway, right? Yeah. They, don't, they don't know when their job, they don't know where they're going to eat, they don't know where they're going to sleep. It's like they don't know if they're going to live or die. Yeah. And so I think that we have an opportunity. You know, you see it. You've seen it with your friends you or your peoples. There are people who are like, no, 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 mine. Don't yeah. touch anything. And then there are people who are like, take my stuff, right? Yeah. This is when you find out what people are made of. And I'm not saying, oh, I'm great, because I, I give all the glory to God. I'm very selfish. Like, I'm, believe me, I have like a cupboard in this house we're renting that's like, I, I don't want to give it away. It's empty. I could put stuff in it. But I'm like, no, that's mine. I might need it later. So that's really selfish, you know? I am selfishness too. But I'm saying this other thing, I don't want to be doing this. This is not my will. I want to be lying in bed, eating ice cream, watching Netflix 24 hours a day. That's what I want. Yeah. I know that this energy and this drive is completely from God. And that's the same thing with my, like, all I'm getting all fired up about the social justice things. Because it's like, you know, I can't stand by and see. I mean, the hypocrisy and that was you know i know you you want to ask your question but it's like that's that's what sort of got me fired up yeah and and so i, I we could wrap up here with this last question because it does go to the issue of hypocrisy uh and, and that was your husband's epic <laughs> tweet storm he, he was a hypocrite or <gasps> no that he was re i'm sorry he was reacting to well, you um, would hypocrisy. Too, I would be scared to fight you. <laughs> well, because I believe yeah. me, I was mortified. Yeah, like, I thought that somebody had like I thought my sister Elizabeth, who was in like uh, her medical of the pregnancy at the time, had given birth. That's how because I have nine siblings. So when something happens in our family, my phone blows up. Like you know, I am blown up. Like ding, 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 ding. Because I got nine siblings, right? Uh -huh. Cousins and everyone. So if somebody's sick or so, I mean, it's like a thing. So my phone was blown up like that. My sister in LA, who was, you know, in, you know, can you imagine being in a, the pandemic and being nine months pregnant? And I thought she gave birth. And I look at everything and he's like, your husband is cursing on Twitter. <laughs> and I was in another room. I wasn't watching that. Sh that the RNC crap. Yeah. The Biden-Harris ticket.
They and other politicians are Catholics in name only. Lou Holtz. He was going off, and I was mortified. I was like, stop cursing. Because I was like, he we, he went 25 years without saying the F-bomb. And I'm, I mean, not in private, like I've heard it before, but I'm not going to be naive. But he's been clean, comedian, which is like, you know, a huge thing to not, because it's much, it's easier to be funny if you say this effing, you know, guy comes over. Like, it's funnier, right, than saying this this gentleman showed up at my door. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, I was like, you know, Jim, we have, like, fans that like kids, and I don't, you know, I was mortified. And so when I told him to, like, retract it, he was like, no. He dug his heels in, and I didn't even know what was going on. And then over the next two days when I was like, ha ha, you know, I'm lace curtain Irish. I'm like, I'm just nothing to see here, people going. And people were like, oh, it's that Jezebel wife of his. Like, and I was looking at these people's profiles. And they're all like Catholic, Catholic, church loving, loves God, just attacking me. And I'm like, I didn't even do it. Right. But I'm the woman. And then all of a sudden I started seeing all this like. So I had been in this bubble where even with my social justice and all this stuff or whatever, I had been in this bubble and um, I didn't realize. And there's been people like, you know, it's like, you know, Mike Lewis and like this whole group I discovered in the pandemic. They're like, oh, no, girl, this has been going on for years and it's getting And The Trump thing just flamed it. And I'm looking at it going, no, 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 that you can't be like, I love Jesus and I'm Catholic and be, you know going for this kind of like this kind of like you know even uh today there was a thing about that uh, chris white published about these catholic pro-life groups trying to stop people from voting yeah and there's people going no that's a very it's a very good logical you know and just justifying and i'm like is this an snl sketch <laughs> yeah it's just to me i'm like does anyone else see that this is just like you can't you can't like say that like you can't it doesn't compute like in and and then you go back to the gospel right mm-hmm. and you also see who was jesus always up in the face of the world the sinners the people who were like you know sending up a storm out in the world or the people on the inside being like no no you're not holy like are we in a sketch can't you see that aren't you worried about your immortal soul or is it like, are you possessed by the devil? And I, I, by the way, when I started saying, I think people are possessed by demons, because I don't think that some of these leaders, like these big, like, uh, culty guys who everyone loves, who, you know, we don't have to talk about the names. (laughs) I don't think they're the devil. I think that they're just, you know, the world. And I think that the demonic influence are the good people who get caught up in the mob mentality and the frenzy and just don't see the truth of God and follow yeah. these people and say, I'm more holier than thee. And it's like that, that got me going. Now, Jim is like over it, right? He's like, why are you even engaged with these, you know? And I'm like, because we got to save the church and whatever. So I'm all fired up about the hypocrisy. And I think also speaking of Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day still was in an era, right? So, 
And also Dorothy Day spent some time in the South and she wrote a chapter in one of her books that was about the plight. It was like the plight of the Negro in the South or something like that. That was the name of her thing. And her publisher was like, you know, that's just too edgy. So that's not even her book. So when you look at Dorothy Day now, even though it's like maybe like where I was more at in my bubble before the brain surgery, like she didn't get into the racism thing to a fault. Like, it was not good that she did not make more of a stand on it. She had her own yeah. agenda. But it was the era. Mm-hmm. And it was like the gay thing, not touched. And there were people in her movement that were like, what about me? Like, I love Jesus, and I feel like I'm a holy child of God, and I'm celibate, and I'm following all the rules, but why am I rejected? And she was like, I just don't want to talk about that, you know. And so yeah. she's going to be a saint, right? But it's like, we have to grow, and we have to find out, because... The same story repeats itself. And that's when, let's go back to Shakespeare. So it's the same story over and over and over and over and over again. And we don't grow and progress, progress, right? I understand the slippery slope argument of the crazy uh, rad trads as they're saying like, you know, um, if we let this happen, then this will happen. And now all the marriages will go away and everyone will just have free love children running around everywhere. And they go slippery slope. And it's like over, conversation over. But what we're not doing is we're not having intelligent dialogue about it. So I understand because a lot of people know that one of the reasons why Rome, back in the day, who loved their gods, right? Rome, Roman gods, loved them, um, went for Christianity is because people were like, you know, vomiting, eating food, like having sex in the streets every day. And they were like, no, no, we need rules, right? It's the same reason why we have, in a lot, a lot of reasons, we have laws about drunk driving and jaywalking because of selfish people who now go, well, maybe I shouldn't get behind the wheel because I might get a DUI. No, you shouldn't get behind the wheel because you might kill yourself and someone else, right? right. But I need the rule yeah. because some people don't care. So there was something about religion having rules that was very, very important for the to really taking hold. And I believe that some rules are good. And believe me, if our little, you know, liberal uh, lefty Catholic group takes over the church, it's going to have the right side of the left Catholics and the left side of the left Catholics that everyone's going to be fighting, right? It's always going to happen that way. But the blatant hypocrisy of not reading the gospel of Jesus Christ and not viewing the catechism through that lens is going to be to the detriment of souls. Amen. Souls, souls, right? Mm -hmm. People's souls are in jeopardy. And that's why one of the reasons I love Gloria so much is because she is like, racism's a sin. And I'm not just concerned for the people who are being persecuted. I'm concerned for the people who are doing the persecuting because I'm worried about their souls. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point because it's it's not just about their actions. It's also about the state of their soul and the state of their heart. So... Yeah, I, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Jeannie. We'll we'll end it right there. This is I'm gonna have to turn this into a two part episode. Definitely. I was like, this is a four part man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which I, I love. This was such a treat to have you on. And man, I need to read your book, which by the way, earned the Christopher Award, correct? Yes, and I'm so honored that that award is better than any any award. And also, you know, my um, our show, the Jim Gaffigan Show, got a Christopher Award too. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Great group of people. That your book is called When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Wherever books are sold. <laughs> yes, it makes a great gift for your family and friends. <laughs> I'll have to check it out myself. So I, it, you've given me quite a reading list here. <laughs> also, I do have to tell people, if you want to like, you know, click on this for more information, it's like, that's the book. This podcast kind of went right through the chapters of the books. And then in the book, there's a lot of details in it. Yes, go get the book and then read Pope Francis's book. Next, let us dream. Let us dream. Let us dream is, actually, I should say you should read that first, but. Yeah, read Pope Francis' book first. Well, I'm, I, when I, you told me that you teach eighth grade, uh-huh. I want to interview you. <laughs> yeah. What's the demographic? Our students, okay. our students are predominantly Hispanic. About half of them are English second uh, language learners. And so, so what, do you teach in Spanish or do you teach in English? I teach, I just teach in English. I have some students who are newcomers. And so I've, figured out how to use technology to translate some of my lessons for them. And where are you in the country? Um, I'm on the West Coast, Santa Maria, St. Mary, Santa Maria, California. Amazing. And um, one more thing. So are the primarily Hispanic kids, are they primarily Mexican? Yes, pretty much almost all of them. I'm sure there are some from um, other Central American or South American countries as well. Really interesting because in California... I mean, it's not interesting because it's geographical, but it's like my experience in New York is very few Mexicans. Uh-huh. Many, many more Puerto Ricans, Dominicans in, in New York. Uh-huh. I, I, the reason I'm talking about this is because each of these countries is as different as me being from America and you being from France. I mean, in my experience. Uh-huh. So... I was wondering if you're teaching at a Catholic school or a public school. Oh, I, just, I teach at a, a public school. Everyone's welcome. <laughs> we take people from all walks of life. I, but, I think amazing. Oh, thank you so much. And, and you're totally right. Sometimes people, this was, I think, true of even Trump. If you're from south of the border, you're just some form of Mexican. <laughs> no thought or, of like... Or just the model of, of a Hispanic. Got a lot of Hispanics. We love our Hispanics. Yes. But why did so many Hispanics vote this way? It's like, well, what, what, which ones? Like, yes. that's a very easy answer. <laughs> you know, if it's like, totally. why did all the Cubans in Florida go for Trump? It's like, well, history, right? Yeah. Know the history, know the culture, please. Yeah, that'll answer the question. Inv- you, can in- you can interview me anytime. I'm available. <laughs> thank you. All right, well, thank you so much, Jeannie. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jose. I want to thank Jeannie Gaffigan for joining us for this two-part episode. Yes, she's amazing. Ugh, I loved it. Hearing her story. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful person. So this week, uh, in this segment of our show, we will discuss what we're watching, what we're reading, what we're listening to. Mm. What have we got this week? Cruella, the origin story. Yes, the new Disney movie entitled Cruella. Mm-hmm. As you said, it uh, it's the origin of the 
Villainess, the 101 Dalmatians film. Yeah. Uh, it stars Emma Stone as the young Estella, who is a bit of a budding fashionista, right? A bit precocious. Mm, yes. But she's a dark side. Mm-hmm. She's a dark side, and her mother refers to her dark side as Cruella. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of shenanigans. One thing leads to another. She's grown up. <laughs> I don't want to give you too many spoilers. And in sort of a double wears Prada situation, Estella is an intern for this really cruel Baroness. Baroness, yeah. Played by Emma Thompson. Who's amazing. She's brilliant. Emma Stone, brilliant. After watching this movie... I, I can't imagine anyone else playing Cruella. She did a wonderful job. She did. The only person I think who might come close to her is... And who did the movie, the live-action version? Oh, Glenn Close? Glenn Close. What? Glenn Close. You don't think she did a good job? Well, yeah, she did. Emma Stone was better. I like the Emma Stone better. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Oh, yes. The Suicide Squad films. Yes, yes, yes. And that bit of a vibe to it. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's just this whole story of how this Baroness is cruel and abusive of her interns, like Estella, and this sort of encourages Estella to to shed her meekness, I guess, and embrace Cruella mm-hmm. as, her, as her true self. Side note to all my music lovers out there, the soundtrack is awesome. It's based in the 1960s. So, yeah, I mean, there are just so many good songs on the soundtrack. It even had um, Iggy Pop. Yes. I Just Want to Be Your Dog. Yes. Classic. Very classic. Well, is is Iggy Pop classic? I mean, he's he's pretty much a trailblazer, I want to say. He's, He's one of a kind. He was punk before punk. Was a thing. Yes, he's pretty badass. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call. I wouldn't refer to Iggy Pop as classic. I would definitely refer to him as badass. Well, he's classic in my brain, in my mind. <laughs> this is coming from the person who uh, was not big on music. No, I'm not. Definitely gonna... not authority there. No, that's not where my strength lies. Yeah. So anyway, check out Cruella. It plays. Now on Disney Plus, um, you do. It's have, not free yet. Yes, you have to pay thirty five bucks. But I thought it was worth it because I thought it was worth it. Yeah. You know, there were there were several of us watching the movie. Yes. If we had gone to the movie theater, it would have been more. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not too bad. Yeah, worth it. Or just wait until it's streaming for free on Disney Plus. Yeah. I give it two thumbs up. <laughs> five stars. <laughs> so while I'm giving it. The old Siskel and Ebert two thumbs up. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 74%. Oh, what is that, like a C? It's a C. It's a solid C. Mm. The audience, they'll give it 97%. Wow. Fooey on you, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I liked Cruella. <laughs> a plus. A plus plus. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. 
and be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. And YouTube. And YouTube. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers. All right, all right, all right. Oh, God.